Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. With no fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. Your practice. Is it worth what you think it is? Well, your host, David Grau, may be able to help answer that question and many others, including when is a good time to sell? I'm Patrice Sikora. David, you've been working with advisors for almost two decades. How have things changed in the world of mergers and acquisitions? It's yeah, funny you ask that as a, an opener, Patrice, because we talked a little bit about it on our first podcast, just mm-hmm. you know, my background and having a chance to, I mean, quite literally sort of grow up with succession planning as it evolved in our industry from where it was in the early 2000s, effectively non-existent. I mean, I won't say that advisory practices, tax practices, agents and agency practices didn't get bought and sold back then, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, but they didn't. I mean, certainly not with any regularity. And I can tell you that just from the number of conversations I had back then. And, you know, with the folks that I worked with, you know, the prior firm that had, I think it was FP back in like 99. And there were so many of those conversations that I would have, they would have where you would spend 90% of the conversation simply trying to convince the advisor, for example, that they had a business, they had a practice that it could be sold. And not only that it could be sold, but that there was a market out there for it because sans a market it's hard to make a case that something has value. And so we've gone from where we were in the early, early 2000s, which is trying to convince people that, that there was a market. And by that, I mean, convince both the sellers and convince the buyers who would not call themselves buyers at that point, but willing participants to take over a book. And so <laughs> with as early as the industry was in the idea of having, I'll just say equity, generally speaking, you know, something that could be bought, sold, transferred, and retained, with that really not existing in the early 2000s in any meaningful way, it, it changed how folks approached the business, how they ran their businesses. Because to them, at that point, it it wasn't a business. It, it was a book of business. It was clients. It was trusted relationships. And then you fast forward, I mean, to get to the crux of your question, how's it changed in the last two decades? Well, shoot, we went from basically a fledgling market trying to convince folks that a, you could sell it, and B, you you can buy it, and you will retain the clients. And then actually seeing that play out uh, was great. But now here we are, you know, basically two decades later. And I would tell you, maybe not every advisor, because there's still a handful of folks I talk to at conferences and meetings that they tell me they're going to die at their desk. Which I mean, I guess is a form of a succession yeah, plan. Yeah, you know, you know that. But it, it, that's not what you'd want by design. But no. at the very least. I think most advisors I've talked to today have the expectation that their business has value, that they could sell it if they want to. They may not want to ultimately, as in they just want to sort of retire through attrition, work a little bit less over time gradually, and then refer their clients to somebody else. But 
that isn't the norm now. Now the expectation is my business has value. The question is how much value does it have, which is a great position to get to as an industry full of business owners that they start to view as a business. Number two, helping solidify that is the financing. Uh Honestly, when you look at how deals were financed, Patrice, back in the early 2000s, you think, but why would anybody not do that deal? Because the deals basically had, you know, a negligible amount of cash up front. I mean, if any, in many cases early on, it was just simply all Patrice, I'll buy your business and I will pay you on an earnout 30% of the revenue for five years or 40% for five years. If it was a good book, we'll see how it goes. It's shared risk, shared reward. And in those models, it, it worked. And again, it's not ideal for a seller to get paid a percentage of the revenue, but when it's plan A and plan B, it doesn't seem nearly as bad. Fast forward to where we are now, and the expectation is my business has value. I can sell it. The buyers expect to retain north of 90% in almost every deal. And then on top of it, because of that more solidified market, you've got industry lenders. So now we actually have banks, financial institutions coming in and saying, you know what? We will loan you the money. You have no collateral, but we will loan you the money against your recurring revenue. And now here we are with half dozen industry lenders. We've got loan brokers. I mean, that's a pretty cool slash crazy evolution in just 10 or 20 years in our industry. So yeah, some pretty big shifts to now looking at industry aggregators backed by private equity. So David, that- what, made, what made the change in the mindset though? I mean, it was it was advisors getting older, looking back and saying, well, maybe I do have something here. Or were they talking to their buddies and the buddies said, hey, you know, I got something here. Do you have something there? Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely more of the latter, to your point. It just sort of happened organically. And again, I'll give credit where credit's due. Uh, You know, FP starting out in the early 2000s, FP transitions, you know, where I was for a handful of years, they sort of forced that market on the industry, which was really cool to see at the time because we were still trying to convince people that you had a book that could be sold. And by virtue of creating a centralized marketplace, all of a sudden kind of proof was in the pudding. And yeah, the deal terms may not have been great initially, but they were a lot better than nothing. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Patrice. You also have a graying industry. Mm -hmm. And that was the same 20 years ago as it is today. You've got a lot of advisors aging out of the industry. And even back then when they weren't thinking about the value of the enterprise they were building, they did want to honor the relationships that they had and so they'd want to connect them with, you know, somebody that they knew and trusted. Well, shoot, Patrice, all of a sudden I have two of you that I know and trust. And I'm trying to figure out, well, who do I refer the clients to? Right. One of us is going to come back and say, well, you know what, what? Why don't I make it worth your while? If you can refer the business over to me, you know, keep your licenses for a little while. I'll do all the work and I'll send you 20% of the revenue. Well, okay, sure. Well, there's a pony in the barn. Let's do it. And so it, it stemmed from that. And all of a sudden you start realizing you can argue whether the books have value or not. What they do have undoubtedly, in most cases, especially now, is recurring revenue. And it's pretty tough to argue that when you have relationships that even if half of them transfer, that generate recurring revenue consistently every month or every quarter, that somebody wouldn't pay something for that. Then fast forward 20 years of that process in an efficient market, and well, here we are. And where are we? Is this a buyer's market? Is this a seller's market? Where are we? It, it has been, as long as I have been doing this, it has been a seller's market. The question is, you know, to what degree? 
that changes, it ebbs and flows, but it, it has been, and I expect for the foreseeable future to be a seller's market. Again, you think about the market that our clients, the advisors and the agents and CPAs serve, I mean, specifically on the advisory side, you're helping folks plan for their retirement. By nature of the work that all of you listening do, you tend to be a little bit more experienced. Your clients tend to be a little bit more seasoned, which is the nice way of saying a little bit older, because again, we're talking about <laughs> retirement planning. <laughs> so it's not uncommon. I mean, there'll be a pretty even bell curve, but the bell curve, you know, its peak is kind of right in the like mid to early 60s. And so when you've got an aging advisor base serving an aging client base, mm-hmm. it's it's not uncommon to expect that you're going to have a lot of you know transactions happening. But at the same time, while there is, there's a lot of buyers, there so far, I think it's mainly because of what we call RIPs, folks who retire in place. They they say they love what they do, they love their clients, they just couldn't see themselves doing anything else. I think largely because of the recurring revenue in our industry, you get a lot of those RIPs. And so you just don't end up having things in balance, buyer to seller ratios. I mean, I think right now we're consistently at 70 to 80 buyers per seller. Oh, wow. And that's, wow. that's a lot. Cause you think about, you know, if you sell your practice someday, Patrice, if you were an advisor, I mean, how many buyers do you actually need? Yeah. Hello. One, just one, the right one, preferably. So having four or five is great. It's nice to have, you know, some competition and bidding just keeps everybody honest. We do not need 70 or 80, but it is, it's gratifying, I'm sure, as a business owner to know that there is a Reading and Willie market to the tune of 70 or 80 people. But I would caution sellers that we work with, because I, I think I mentioned it on maybe our first podcast we did together. If not, I've said it a dozen times in the last couple of weeks in presentations, and any of you listening will hear me say it again. We've gone from a market you know, 20 years ago where we were trying to convince advisors that they had a book to sell, where we are today, which is sellers in many cases having an unreasonable expectation of the value of their business. Yeah. When they hear they hear the average multiples, they hear the ranges, the I mean nobody's average, right? They're all better than average. <laughs> <laughs> to where sometimes we start bumping up into not just unreasonable but borderline irrational. And I get it. Again, we'll all be there someday when we sell our businesses, but th- there are 70 or 80 buyers interested, but in reality there's probably 10 or 15 that are, they're interested, but they're also, they're capable. Like they have the infrastructure, they have the time they could commit and they could get access to the capital. That's a much smaller number, but still 10 or 15 is nine or 14 more than most folks actually will ever end up meeting. Right. And I, I would think that the advisor really also in a, a, a perfect world cares about who his, to whom his clients are going. So honestly, it, I mean, fit is is and should be the number one priority. It can be easy to lose sight of as you work through this process, because again, it's the sale of your business. It's probably, as an advisor, agent, or CPA listening today, it's probably one of your more valuable personal assets. So I, I get making the value a priority. There's no shame in that, frankly. But at the same time, it is client relationships that we are talking about here. It's it is literally an asset that has the ability to vote with its feet. It may have substantial value, but it still has some say-so in the success or failure of these deals. And so fit has to be the number one priority. And I would tell you that's probably why we have the number of industry lenders in our space now committed, where we had none up until like 
seven, eight years ago, because our industry has put the fit as the number one priority, you almost always have like 95% retention 12 and 24 months after the deal has closed. So if I'm an industry lender, would I rather lend to a business that has tons of you know, tangible collateral I could go repossess if and when there's a default? Or would I rather lend to an industry where they just don't ever default because they have recurring revenue? So the FID has been the priority. And I think there's been a whole bunch of ancillary benefits that have come from that. Among the advisors today, what are some of the biggest challenges you see them having to deal with? Well, that is an interesting one. There, I mean, I'm sure there's a handful of challenges. The big ones we see from the seat we sit in, valuation, succession planning, and equity sharing is, if I could group them into high-level topics, let's say fees and the client experience to help justify those fees being charged to clients. And the other one just being talent development, you know, retention as well, but talent development and compensation, like those those two categories, fees and the client experience and the talent development, how we pay those folks, those are probably two of the bigger challenges folks face. And to not get long-winded, I won't get my soapbox out for these two because they are <laughs> they're big topics and they are things that we we hear folks struggling with, but making a lot of progress with as well, because it's not lost on them. The the fees and the client experience, there's been a lot of conversations over the last couple of years about the pressure on fees, which again, you think about it from perspective we sit in, valuation, if we have the expectation long-term, like the advisor community, that the fees, i.e. the money made by advisors is going to be changing significantly for the worse. I mean, that's going to impact valuations because valuation, regardless of who does the valuation or even the methodology that they use, Patrice, it's it comes down to an asset's ability to produce revenue into the future. Mm -hmm. And so if we have a negative outlook about that, it's going to impact the values. The good news is on the fee side, where I think the industry could have ended up, you know, in many cases, folding like a cheap tent on the fees and just reducing their fees because of increased competition and robo-advisors and regulations and everything else, most folks have gone the other way with it. And I think this is in large part to industry coaches, broker dealers, custodians, getting out there and beating this drum that it's not about just competing on price. It's about justifying your fees. And so it's been really cool to see folks shift from talking about the their client service model or service models, if they have different ones, to shifting to talking about the client experience. And as subtle or nuanced as that might be, I mean, it's a pretty pronounced difference when you talk to firms, let's say two firms, both being with 10 million in revenue, one is talking about their client service model, the other talking about their client experience, you will tend to see it in the fees they charge in their retention rates of clients, their retention rates of employees. Mm -hmm. So pretty pronounced you know, difference from such a nuanced you know, subject and then on the talent development and compensation side, and we can unpack these you know, more in future sessions together or now, career pathing. Again, as stupid, simple as that sounds, our industry has been a little behind the eight ball on career pathing. And behind the eight ball, I mean, like it's been virtually non-existent. Uh, the FPA over the years, I think just the evolving advisory model has been really good about making progress on that topic where it's probably the only thing I think CPA firms or law firms have on the advisor business model is you could come in as an unpaid intern at a law office or CPA practice and ask anybody around while getting coffee, tell me about the career track. And they could generally tell you 
the career track all the way to making partner and probably also share the pay bands with you versus our industry, which up until a couple of years ago, really, it was tough to figure out like a consistent set of job descriptions and titles that you'd progress through at an advisory firm, let alone your ability to make partners someday. So that we've seen a lot of progress on finally. And then as a result of it, you're also starting to see people shift in the advisory community away from commission-based payouts for their next-gen talent to more of a salary and bonus where it actually starts to feel like a job versus me coming in and being a salesperson. Are they getting next-gen talent? I keep hearing the, the advisors all, all these <laughs> old white people and right and uh, nobody's coming in. And yet I've, I hear people talk about all the wonderful programs in universities and colleges these days and young people coming out and getting into the business. Where are they? What happens to them? It, that, that is such a tough one. And we have made a ton of progress on it. And the colleges, you know, commendable for the work that they've done, getting some next-gen folks ready. But then it's about getting them into the practices. And I got to say, if you look at where our industry has been the last two decades, if I was a college college grad coming out, and I had gone through one of these you know, financial planning programs only to come out. And then my prospect is to go join up with a firm, fill in the blank, doesn't really matter, REA, IBD, Captive, Wirehouse, Regional Bank, whatever. The norm was I would come out of college, I'd go into one of these firms, and then either I get a declining payout over three years as I build my book, or I come in and somebody sees me with some C and D clients, and then I'm expected to go build a book. I would pursue that, and I think most college students pursued that, if they couldn't go teach English in a foreign country, as in like, <laughs> this was plan C. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, for the next gen, especially the ones that we know of now that are in the yeah. industry, they don't love selling, I mean, at least not the same way that you know the current founders, Gen 1 folks did. And it's if you don't service. like selling, it's it's, but it's service to your yeah. point, but that's where it has shifted. That's not where it was you know, 10 and 20 uh, years ago. And so you got sort of the changing of the old guard, not good or bad. It just, where's all the talent? Well, it, it's out there. The problem is, I think to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, when you're talking to folks who built a business from the ground up, they are trying to find people who are just like them, just 20 or 30 years younger. Uh, but that at this point, isn't actually what most advisors businesses need. They don't need more people to go out and prospect and be entrepreneurial. They've already taken them on for the team and they've done that. Now they've established a practice or a business. Now we need the next gen to take it and run with it. That the next generation is prepared for. And as soon as we can get these career tracks figured out, compensation you know, shifted from revenue-based percentages to a salary and bonus, it's going to make it a lot more attractive to bring talent out of these colleges with a lot more regularity, which I'm excited about. Which brings up the question for these next gen folks, what should they do if they want to practice? They want to take over a practice. That is, that is challenging. And I would tell you, you know, having sat in that seat myself, having worked with advisors over two decades on this, you know, working with both the Gen 2 and Gen 3 folks, but also the Gen 1, the founders, I would say it's, it's about being patient, being deferential, earn your stripes and acknowledge that it, it's going to take time. It's not going to happen in the first you know, probably five to 10 years, but if, if you can be, if you can make yourself invaluable to the organization, that is a step in the right direction. It is about helping the organization if they don't have a career path, 
you don't have to wait for the founder, the Gen 1 folks to do this. You, you can help lead the charge. And But again, that goes back to my comment about make yourself invaluable, mm-hmm. be patient, but also bring it up. I mean, I can't tell you how many founders, Gen 1 folks I talk to that they're astounded that you know their next gen talent hasn't even brought this topic up, that they seem to have no interest. And the hard part then is you get Gen 1 thinking, well, Gen 2, Gen 3, if they're interested, they should ask. You get Gen 2, Gen 3. Three thinking, well, why in the world don't they ever want to talk about their succession plan? Ah, At some point, somebody just needs to initiate the conversation and keep an open mind. Like you're not going to force anybody to do anything in a professional service business. But the more, you know, I'll just say we collectively, everybody in this industry can help the Gen 1 folks know and acknowledge they're going to leave the business at some point. Horizontally or vertically, it's coming. Let's just try to be a little bit more proactive than someday dragging you out of your office and trying to fight over who sits there. So when should they start planning? I would say if we're going to look at maybe internal succession planning, so that would be you know, Gen 1, Gen 2, to their internal folks, five to seven years works, seven to 10 is better. I would say everything else being held equal start with the end in mind. And whether that's you starting to think today and you want to retire in two or three years or starting today and you're 30 or 40 years off from it, it it will inform the kind of business you build. If you decide, you know what, I'm going to build a business and my expectation is I want to get it to a big enough size that I can sell it to an industry aggregator and get a big check and put that on my personal balance sheet. Fantastic. Build with that in mind. If your goal is to bring your son or daughter into the business, nieces and nephews, you want to have a really robust family business. Fantastic. I don't care if the son or daughter you want to bring in the business is four years old right now. If that is your expectation, build your team, build your practice with that in mind. So, but technically I'd say the ideal sweet spot for internal succession planning is probably seven to 10 years. It's enough time where you've got all the choices available to you, but it's not so much time where it just starts to get away from you as a priority. If we're going to maybe look at like a merger or just a sale to a peer, two to four years is probably the sweet spot. We can do it in less time if we had to. You just don't have as much flexibility. And it also probably depends on the size of the business, Patrice. If we're talking about a firm with a billion in AUM versus a hundred million, if you sort of equate it to you know a plane, the bigger the plane, the longer the runway we really need to land this thing safely. Like, can we get everybody on the ground? Sure. But I just assume do it and have everybody walk off, you know, versus, you know, heading out the slides at the end right, of the day. Right. Is there any value that you've seen to looking outside for a successor versus inside? Yes. I mean, again, a lot of this comes back to the business planning. I mean, formally or informally, but if the goal is to get it to half a billion or a billion or 50 million, I, I, again, I don't really care mm. what their goal or aspirations are, but as you start to look at bigger businesses, bigger teams, you may find as you start doing your organizational chart and planning, if we're right now at, let's say 500 million in assets, and we plan to be at a billion by the time I retire, and let's say that's five to seven years from now, what does our organizational chart need to look like? five to seven years, if we had a billion in AUM, they may find that they have the support staff already there and they just need to keep building their farm team of talent. In many cases, they end up finding, you know what, as as we get that big, 
I, I can't do everything. I can't be the CEO, CIO, CFO, CCO. And we need to start looking for talent outside the organization. And the hard part is that stuff takes time. Whether you're trying to bring in, you know, C-level folks or even just building your farm team of talent, bringing those folks out of college and getting them credentialed, getting them some experience. It's incredibly rewarding and it's really fun to watch when these things work, but they, they do take time. All right. Now we are going to go into depth. I should say you will be going into depth on all these topics, but I want to wrap up with one last question to you. Please. So an advisor is ready. Yes, they've decided they're going to, to plan. They're going to get out. They're going to retire. What's the first step? So to keep it simple, and again, you know, stay succinct here, punch list, I would say, number one, start by having the business valued. If, and I'd say even formally or informally. No different than, you know, think of commercial or residential real estate. It's just nice to have an idea of what your home is worth. Whether you plan to buy it or sell it today or tomorrow or your kids inherit it, you treat the home differently knowing that it has value. So valuation, even if you just take the average multiples to be published twice a year, we should do it end of January and beginning of July for the mid-year update, take our average multiples or spend the couple thousand dollars and have the business valued. It's not so much about the number today. It's about being informed about what drove that number, the value drivers and detractors. That is a really, really useful tool to get objective advice. The hard part is 20 years ago, nobody knew anything really about succession planning. Today, everybody <laughs> has an opinion about your valuation, your succession plan. The problem is a lot of the folks who are giving you this advice, they mean well, but they're providing it to you from the seat they sit in. If that's your broker dealer, well, their, their goal is not for you to get the highest and best value. They're not trying to stop you from doing that. But if they're going to pick a side, they want their buyers to not be grossly overpaying for practices. They want them getting a good deal to go out and grow and build on this thing. So it's about getting perspective and objective advice at the end of the day, just so you can make a decision with full information. And then bottom line, it's just kind of the who, what, where, when, why is start thinking about the basics. Who takes it over? Mm -hmm. When do they do that? And, and break it down to its smaller, easier pieces. Not when you want to retire. Because again, Patrice, you know this as well as I do. These are not steel workers. All of you listening today, I get it. <laughs> you could die at your desk if you so chose, or you could work maybe well past the point where most other industries would. But at the same time, it, it takes time to build a succession plan and to hand your clients off and have that be successful. So while you could do it for probably longer than most other industries, it's also really nice when you can be proactive and start thinking about if we can't commit you to a date when you're going to retire, when would you want to cut back and slow down. Right. That's usually an answer. Even if the advisor can't answer that, their spouse usually can. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point to start working our way backwards from just like advisors working with their clients. When do you want to retire? If I say, well, I have no idea. It's kind of hard to do a financial plan and build around that. But if we can just pencil something in, we can start to make some progress knowing that it's going to change. All right. Fantastic stuff here, David. I can't wait to hear some more on all of these topics, but how can advisors reach you if they've got some questions right now? Uh, either visit our site, successionresource.com. That's got tons of good information. You can literally just chat live with our uh, support team there. Also check us out on social media. We're really good about pushing out. I mean, content like our lovely podcast here with you, Patrice, 
uh, as well as lots of other good content, usually through LinkedIn. It's on Facebook and I think Instagram as well. But yeah, follow us there and we'll make sure you never miss out on any of our content. So get some answers. There's no reason not to. And follow and share Dave's podcast. Also, let him know your questions. Thanks for being with us. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.